0: have the credibility I have today because of all the time I spent in the field doing what I do. You know, I don't think I could just sort of say things and be like, well, this is how I feel. If If I had an anchors show, I can tell people who are good interviewers and who are bad interviewers because I've actually done it. I've done good ones and I've done bad ones. I can tell you exactly how they go wrong. You know why? Because I personally have had them go very wrong. I am not better than anybody else. I'm good at some things. I am bad at other things. And so I think it's really... You know, I think sometimes you have to wait a little bit to execute on your voice the way you want to, because you want your credibility to be very high. A voice without credibility, I think, is a lot less valuable.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the podcast, Rebel EM. Rebel EM stands for Rational, Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm in conversation with Soledad O'Brien. Soledad is an award-winning journalist. She's an anchor and producer for Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien. She's a founder and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. I'm going to tell you more about that production company, but hold on. Let me list a few more things. She serves on the board of trustees for the National Museum of the American Latino. This is a museum, a Smithsonian museum that's being built on the mall. For those of you that want to hear the word mall in Washington, DC with her husband, she founded the powerful foundation. That's P O W capital H capital E capital R. Get it. Her powerful foundation. The mission is to get young women to and through college. Now, The production company, SOB. So that's a shout out to New Yorkers that think of Sounds of Brazil. However, this is not Sounds of Brazil. This stands for Soledad O'Brien, S O apostrophe B. The production company is multi platform. They also distribute. They're dedicated to uncovering stories on the divisive or divisive issues of race, class, wealth, poverty, and opportunity through personal narratives. They've produced a number of documentaries of which with which you may be familiar. Black in America, Latino in America, and most recently, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. This aired at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival. Soledad and I first connected related to a Brown University alumni event. I was moderating a panel and she sat on the panel. Turns out one of her children attends Brown University. Turns out also that she has a connection to Rhode Island. In fact, she knows Southern Rhode Island. She knows my hometown of Westerly, and she spends time in Narragansett. So let's get to the conversation. When we get to it, we've talked a little bit about voice, visible voice, finding one's voice, and I've asked Soledad about the science of belonging. At one point, you were doing a bit of a deep dive into the science of belonging, Mm. and I was wondering where, where you are today
0: with that. You know, I'm not anywhere with it because it's not really my field, but I find the topic fascinating because, of course, we, you know, I was there for the diversity and then the diversity um, and inclusion. And now I think diversity and inclusion has really become belonging is a kind of a new version of it. And I like the the idea and the conversations around, look, how do you measure belonging? Because really, it started during the pandemic. And I thought it was just so fascinating. Like, yeah, that is the thing. Right? Like diversity to me is just a count. We got these many black people, these many white people, these many Hispanic people. Uh, Diversity and uh, inclusion is okay, you know, who's in the room. But then when it comes to belonging, is really how that person feels, right? It's not just, hey, we've taken a record and I can tell you who's included in the conversation. I can tell you the numbers. It's does that person feel like they belong, which is a whole other measure, right? It's a very, um, it's a measure that seems very, Complicated to actually get to, because it's not how what I can count. It's how they feel, and um, and so I have found that just fascinating. And I do think when everybody was doing their resigning from their job thing, I really thought it was very interesting. Um, you know, the Great Resignation that the people who felt like they belonged really didn't have any interest in resigning, and the people who who just felt like they had no feeling of belonging to their organization did resign because they felt like they could get a better deal elsewhere.
1: Yeah. The frame of that is almost, it's, you know, um, on the show, we cover a lot of episodes on health design and like creating solutions, workflows, emergency departments, uh, pulse oximeters that are human centered, that are actually patient centered and actually provide outcomes. And part of that design process is involving the person in the conversation. So the belonging part is actually involving the person not determining what's happening to them but asking what's happening to you how do you feel
0: Mm, interesting yeah we sort of did a similar thing on our show matter of fact where we got rid of the dueling congressman and we decided that our show would be around centering people what does the policy mean to people who's affected by this policy how does it actually work what does it what does it mean and it was fascinating because what you really you know once you remove the yelling congressman you remove a lot of politics, right? You remove kind of the nastiness of politics from it because if you're talking about insulin, kind of everybody, right? Like it doesn't, you know, there's lots of people all over the political spectrum who who need insulin and who can't afford insulin. And even if you have a really good job and you have a kid who needs insulin, who's off your who's off your insurance, you might be digging through your savings to help your child you know, which is the story of the one, one of the women that I was profiling. And, I, you know, I, I couldn't tell you her politics. Like a lot of cable news is based on this person's on the left, this person's on the right, this person's worked for this campaign, this person, you know, we know their, their point of view, but when it comes to, when you start centering people around housing issues or around medical issues, like where they are in the political spectrum is, Is not even in the top twenty-five questions you'd ask them. I'm sure in emergency medicine too. Listen, if someone doesn't walk in and you don't say, "Listen, before we, before I take your pulse, there's a couple of things I'm going to need to know about how you voted." Like you don't care. You're kind of like, "What do you need? What's the problem? What's happening? How can we help you? What can you?" You know, all there's a million things that you're first trying to figure out. And we found our show—it's a policy show, but it's not particularly political because it's about. You know, and we told the story, for example, of a guy who had moved to Mexico in order to find housing that was affordable. He lives in San Diego. He's not Latino. He doesn't speak Spanish, but he could find affordable housing in Mexico and just commute in every day because we wanted to tackle the problem of the high cost of housing for people who are in. He's got a full time job. He's got a solid job. You know, it's not like he doesn't have any money or that he's homeless. He just literally can't afford the ridiculously high cost of housing in San Diego, which is difficult for many cities. And so it was a very interesting way, but I I couldn't tell you his politics. I have no idea. Um, It was just not something that we we covered. It was irrelevant for our story.
1: I think the audience is interested in how you prepare for your storytelling. How do you frame your stories and what's the background work you do?
0: Hmm. I think you sit down. We have a great team and it really, I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but it really does start with that because you really need all the feedback on the front end, right? Like, I think this is a good idea. I think this is a bad idea. I think this is a lame idea. I think this idea could be better if we did it this way. And then you go and you decide to, you know, for example, we just did a story in the Bronx looking at asthma and hot and heat, you know, causing all sorts of issues for people in the Bronx compared to, uh, let's say, the Upper East Side and why that is in a study that's happening at Columbia University. And so we really were interested in heat and, you know, and how how people were measuring this and and what was happening, like how was it actually working? So we wanted to, so once we know kind of like, okay, the story is this, we want to then find the scientists and find the scientists who can talk and explain things very clearly to non-scientists and then find a family that's dealing with something so that they can explain what they're in is on the story and, and really help people Understand, especially a science story, right? Like without it being, well, let me explain to you how you know oxygen comes into the body. But really, here's a story about a woman who's just trying to keep her son from needing hospitalization on the hottest days of the summer because he's got very bad asthma. You know that is kind of our our process. Once we figure out what what story we're trying to tell, then who are the best people to help us tell that story? Which is why you know back to what we were talking about earlier, you know. Anybody who tells you like the New York Times doesn't pick the stories or everybody it just happens like not true. You spend so much time on the story and and whose voice is heard and who you elevate and who you ignore is very intentional. You know, there's not just news that just shows up on TV. Everyone decides this is what we're doing. Here's who we want to hear from. Here's how we're going to book them. We're going to give them six and a half minutes. Then we're going to book this person. Then we're going to roll commercial like it's very intentional and this idea that there's not um, a system that's helping pick these people and that there's not a that there's not bias involved in how you know whose story gets elevated and whose gets ignored is just kind of silly
1: which side of the microphone do you like being on
0: I like interviewing people probably better um I like I think I like interviewing people better
1: yeah, and so what is your interviewing process? You know, you've, your team and you have worked to develop the story, gotten your background. You know, what, what part are you focusing a lot of time on?
0: I try to do two things. One, I, especially if you're doing, it depends if it's live or if it's if it's uh, taped, if it's a doc, which means you're probably going to have a couple of hours, or if it's a four minute live interview. Um, I try to learn everything, which I think everybody who's a good student does. Learn everything you possibly can about a person, but then I really try to. Um, listen to them because I want to understand their cadence. where can I interrupt like I want to make sure it feels like we're having a conversation. So you know some people talk weirdly I mean they talk where they'll stop and then they'll then they'll they'll stop twice or something and you have to kind of know their the dance steps that they're doing so that you can jump in and do those dance steps with them um, So understanding how someone delivers is really helpful I think as well. What I'm interested is,
1: I think, I don't know what time it was, college maybe, when you uh, worked for your father. And I'm wondering if you can share with the audience this story, because this is a key, key story. And it, was a, it sounds like an aha learning time for you in terms of the way things work and what people are willing to say behind
0: people's back. Yeah, you know, it was in college because I had torn my ACL. So I had just finished my freshman year and my dad hired me. Uh, to be his assistant, which was great because I could help him basically sit with my leg up. I was in a, a full leg brace uh, because I' had torn my ACL. And so I was his assistant was leaving, and I basically got to help out in the office. And um, at one point, uh, the um, we were interviewing people, and my job was to escort them kind of in and out. Like I'd meet them and walk them. And I must, by then I must have been getting close to getting my, my brace off because I could w- actually walk at the beginning. I only could go on crutches. And I remember the number of times people would tell me like, oh my God, that guy's an idiot. Or just like, it was so surprising to me what people would say. And, and you realize that just so many people don't know how to be interviewed or don't know to keep their mouth shut. I mean, my dad was a super white looking guy so i think i obviously didn't really look like him and i was just the random chick who was going to walk somebody back and forth but i was always amazed at what people would say of course which of course i would then dutifully report back to my dad <laughs> so i'm sure i killed some people's prospects cuz they weren't really smart about like not saying things that they shouldn't say and you know and 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 sharing unflattering things about the interviewer did you ever say by the way that's my dad Never. Not once. Never revealed it. Not once. I would just say, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. When I listen to uh,
1: the stories, the people that you cover, obviously they're intentional. We already established that. And then they're not just intentional. You are seeking to amplify voices and stories and things that perhaps others in America are ignoring or not paying attention to. And more than that, So that I think they're love stories, and you know, often the the word love is in the title. So, in very opinionated, you spoke with the director of the film that's now on Netflix, a love song for Latasha, and you know, I watched that, and it um, it was heartbreaking. It was moving. It it was all. It was beautiful. It was joyful. And I'm wondering how you came to that story and how it struck you.
0: Yeah, you know, we met the filmmaker, and again, it seemed to really fit what Matter of Fact does, which is. Our tagline is "Stories as diverse as America," and you know it's such a classic a documentary about kind of the uh, the forgotten young person at the center of what really kicked off the riots in a lot of ways in ways in L.A. and yet, kind of her story is forgotten. People know of if they know her at all. They know the, that tiny little moment. They don't actually know anything about her backstory, who she was as a human being. So it seemed like a really interesting, you know, it was a good way for us to look at the LA riots anniversary. I mean, that's what we're always looking for. Everyone's going to tell it like this, but how do we tell these stories? What, what's, what's our way in? And, and also to educate people. I mean, I, I like that matter of fact is all about, you know, you're going to walk away at the end of our show having learned something that other people just, you know, you're not going to learn elsewhere. So yeah, it was a really good fit for us. And I know, and it's true. I mean, and I think often when you're when you're fighting to share stories about people who don't get a lot of coverage, it does become a love story, right? Because it's so much work and it's so hard and you're usually banging your head up against the wall that if you don't, if you aren't doing it because you're very passionate and you're, you love the person or the, or the, you know, whatever it is that you're talking about, you have to love it a lot to to have the stamina to keep it up and to keep pushing and saying, this is important, this is important, who's gonna air this story.
1: Excitedly, last month, Tribeca Film Festival, you were the executive producer for The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And uh, I was able to view that in, in anticipation of our conversation. Tell the audience about that amazing documentary.
0: Yeah, we, we had two really great uh, directors who came to us with the book, which of the same title. and. Um, and it was this idea that I actually, there was so much I didn't know about Rosa Parks. Um, and I think a lot of Americans like Rosa Parks. Yeah, we know all about her. What do you know? But, but actually there's a lot you don't know. Rosa Parks, I think there's this, there's a sense that, you know, it's just this docile, old lady, tired at the end of her work day who just finally one day just couldn't get up out of her seat. But when you actually learn about Rosa Parks, you learn about her history and her history in fighting for civil rights. I mean, very tough lady. I mean, complete badass in a lot of ways. And when she was saying that she was, when she was interviewed, she said, I was tired, but she, her actual full quote is about being tired of being discriminated against. Not, I was tired because it had been a long day. It was really like, I'm sick of this shit, basically, and I, we're not going to take it anymore. And so, you know, very rarely do people talk about what happened to Rose Parks. Afterward, she lost her job. Uh, she lost her career. She had to, lost her house. She had to move, you know. And so, you know, we, we have this really weirdly... Um, framed story about someone who we all think we know that's pretty wrong actually you know we we like the concept of the 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 accidental civil rights versus you know just happened one day that well that's just not accurate to who her story was she'd been fighting for civil rights for a very long time and so we I love the idea that we would get to tell the story but I also love the idea that we would um get to explain to people the why around why you frame her as a docile, accidental person. What is the benefit to people who are against civil rights? What's the benefit to people who support civil rights? Uh, I think I thought it was just very helpful to do that.
1: Yeah, no, it was convenient. She's a perfect voice to amplify and to make visible because I think most people don't know the real story and her long history of advocacy and activity in civil rights. One thing that struck me about the documentary is, to your point, not that she lose her job and have to move, but, you know, once the right to vote passed, all these people, all these leaders in the civil rights movement were celebrated. They got honorariums. They were celebrated. They were, you know, uh, got the red carpet treatment. She got no honorarium. She got, like, she wasn't given some of the, because she was a woman. Whereas some of the men in the movement were getting lots of accolades, lots of money. You know, to pave their way and to continue continue in the movement.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's a classic story, right? First of all, I think the women not really being celebrated. And and so it, it begs the question even more. So then, you know, why, why? Why was there why has there never been a dock before? Now, when someone when they said to me, you know, there's never been a dock on Rosa Parks, like a full-length dock, I couldn't believe it. I usually was like, Hold on while I research that, I just don't think that could be true, but it was true. So, yeah, we knew that, you know, people, there was a lot to learn and a lot to understand about Rosa Parks. And we knew we could bring that to people.
1: Yeah.
0: What stories have kept you up at night? Oh, God, everything. What hasn't a shorter list is what has not kept me up at night so much. I mean, bad journalism keeps me up at night. I think our Supreme Court keeps me up at night. Uh, I think the fact that there's no clean water in, you know, in Flint, Michigan still keeps me up at night. And folks in Texas right now are trying to decide if they run the air conditioning too long, are they going to blow out the power grid, which they might. That keeps me up at night. Um, You know, so there's just a ton that keeps me up at night.
1: And what stories have you not covered that you want to cover?
0: Oh, gosh, everything. I mean, we're in the middle of a bunch of different documentaries Um, It's never really the stories you want to cover. It's the platforms. You know, where do they get to live and how much attention will they get?
1: I want to move towards your experience uh, in journalism uh, early on with harassment, uh, sexual harassment, gender harassment. And, you know, tie it to your conversation uh, with uh, the founder of the Me Too movement, Tarana Burke
0: yeah she's amazing right she's just so smart and interesting, and one of the things I love about her, which I love it because it's so not me, is she's just very um hopeful you know she just like i love people who are like toiling away and they should just be exhausted right and they should be exhausted and miserable people, and she's just like no we're we're here doing the work i i I really admire her for that because I think I'd just be mad and bitter and, <laughs> and unpetty, and and she's really none of those things. So I love her for that. Um, you know, I think she's just a very interesting woman, and I love that she's trying to, you know, not just have a movement, but really trying to solve some real problems in the the work environment. Um, you know, it's, I think they've been able to bring real change. I think there's been a backlash to some degree on on Me Too, which is not not surprising at all. Um, Me Too is not the be all end all, um, solution for every single thing, of course, obviously. Um, but I do think it's, you know, what they've been able to create is pretty amazing.
1: And what have been your experiences in journalism?
0: I didn't have a lot of bad experiences with harassment. I had friends who did. Um, but I, you know, so, I, but I do think generally speaking, it's changing, right? Which is, you know there are places to report partly i think companies have recognized their own risks you know so that the the risk now of having a, a an employee complain is much greater back in the day the risk was that the person who was doing it you know you would never confront them because if they were a good performer or a you know a, a bold face name or your star person it just wouldn't be worth it. You know, if your star anchor is harassing the production assistant, well, we know where they fall on the food chain and we are just gonna get rid of the production assistant. But now I think there's so much liability for a company um, that it's problematic. And I think that's good, right? Companies are have a vested interest in not just protecting the star, but in stomping out of this kind of thing anyway, and as a whole. So I think that's a positive. I never had I never personally experienced much harassment. I had a lot of friends who did, and then I had some friends who had nothing you know, every so often you get like, I remember there was at a dinner once. I remember once being at a dinner and a very famous network anchor came up behind me. I was wearing a strapless dress and he like massaged my shoulders. First of all, he was like, could have been, he was older than my grandfather. So that was just, but also like, um, and I just remember thinking I, what, what really pissed me off about it was, um, how much I had to like physically wriggle around to make everybody else at the table comfortable with what was going on. I'm like, why is it on me? Why am I the one who has to bend over backward to be like, no, what, totally, oh my gosh. And I'm doing this, right? Cause I'm trying to like kind of get his hands off the back of me. And I didn't know him well, we didn't know each other. Like I didn't, I didn't know him at all. It wasn't like a friend of mine who's like, Soledad, oh my God, you know? And then it just was so crazy. But the thing that I find, and I think women, often feel this way, right? Like what what lands on you is the making everybody else comfortable in an uncomfortable situation versus like, get your hands off me. If he had been a friend of mine, I would have been, oh my God, what do you get off me? Because it would be much easier to say. No normal person does that at a dinner, runs up to a person and (laughs) massages their shoulders. But if you've never been told no before, then you might actually do that.
1: Early on, um, you were on a reporting, a journal gig, you had flown somewhere and something had happened. You shared this story
0: in one of your interviews and you called your husband. Yes, yeah, crying, yes. A producer, I was in Thailand actually, I had landed and he, the producer said, if you, I know you're a big star for CNN, i just come to CNN. So it was 2004 tsunami. So I'd just been there a little bit and I just had my twins. So is that right? Yeah, so I just had my twins and um and i'd flown to thailand and he was like and if you can't hack it i'm gonna put you on a plane home which was so funny because i was like i mean that's what you'd say to a 16 year old like listen missy if you are sassy i'm gonna put you on a plane i was like i think at that point i, would, I had my twins so i had them at 38 at 30 i was 30 almost 40 years old <laughs> it was like what are you ta-? i was so upset and i'm a crier when i'm upset <laughs> so i burst into tears um but i really was it was so it was just so so upsetting." And what I was able to do was call my husband because I didn't know what else to do. And his his advice was so good. I tell this story a lot because I actually think his advice is worth repeating, which was there's not much you can do. Like, you can't call your bosses and say, oh, this guy's being mean to me. You, you know, all you can do is execute. And that was really what I did. We ended up going to Thailand. I, I did his special. We were working on a special together. And then and that was basically all day. But Thailand's twelve hours ahead. So at the end of the day, I could start my morning show, which went from 6 to 10 AM, but 6 to 10 PM in Thailand, and then go to bed. So I really was doing double duty. And because I've been in the field all day, so anchoring was very easy because you could just fill time, you know, talking about the things that you had seen all day. So it was pretty interesting. And 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 I basically, you know, we just executed. We did a great show day after day, and then we also did a great special. But I was just so offended, and I'm pretty sure if I hadn't been a relatively young woman like no one would say that to my husband you know like Brad I'm gonna I'm gonna send you home if you can't hack it in this meeting like it's so bizarre but you know I think I thought his advice was really good which is you know sometimes the only thing to do is to put your head down and just execute because nothing else really works yeah so
1: even though you were saying that Trina Burke is is hopeful you sound quite hopeful. do you think that the journalism the industry has changed? Uh, are we any further along? Because I'll tell you healthcare not much has changed. Um, it takes yeah, a little bit I, of a different form, but
0: yeah, you know, I, I, I i'm I'm nauseatingly hopeful, so i am I think I am a hopeful person just because i I'm not sure I can live in a place where I'm not hopeful. So I think the only alternative for me is to be hopeful. and um but I think people are changing journalism, and I think again, the only example I can give is, The show that I do where we do a very different model of journalism beats those other people. We win. I think if our stuff was doing terribly and the audience didn't like it and, you know, I might be frustrated, but I've actually found the audience likes it better. The audience actually wants to understand what is happening in the world. And so I have felt really good about that. So, yeah, I think change is very slow. But I, I do think things are changing because if they don't, I mean, by, for us, you know, your audience is people who've got to go to the hospital, but in our audiences, they vote with their clickers, man. You can tell very clearly if somebody hates what you're doing because they just leave. And I think a lot of news organizations are really, you know, losing viewers because nobody, nobody wants to watch two congressmen yell at each other. They just don't.
1: How would you advise audience members, people that are listening that want to use their voice, but they're hesitant or afraid to use their voice?
0: Well, sometimes I think being hesitant to use your voice means that maybe you shouldn't use your voice, right? I mean, there's a time and a place. And yeah, I'm sure for a lot of, you know, if you're a new, if you're a medical student or you're in your, like, of course, you you sit there and just watch. There's a real power in just like watching what's happening, understanding who the players are and how the system works. I mean, that actually takes a long time. I have the credibility I have today because of all the time I spent in the field doing what I do. You know, I don't think I could just sort of say things and be like, well, this is how I feel. If I if I had an anchors show, I can tell people who are good interviewers and who are bad interviewers because I've actually done it. I've done good ones and I've done bad ones. I can tell you exactly how they go wrong. You know why? Because I personally have had them go very wrong. I am not better than anybody else. I'm good at some things, I am bad at other things. And so I think it's really, you know, I think sometimes you have to wait a little bit to execute on your voice the way you want to because you want your credibility to be very high. A voice without credibility I think is a lot less valuable.
1: I loved this conversation. Before we get to the research wrap up, though, here's a word about the podcast Broom Docs. G'day, I'm Dr. Casey Parker. Check out the Broom Docs podcast. I strive to bring excellent critical care to our rural, remote, and Aboriginal people in tropical Australia. I like to translate evidence into rural healthcare. There's a lot of cases and some real cool ultrasound pills. Okay, the Risa wrap-up. Well, first and foremost, thank you, Soledad. Thank you to Soledad and her team. And I love that she did a shout-out hat tip to her team because it really does take a team to bring people and stories to the fore. And I wanted to say that right there, to the fore. What struck me about Soledad is she's free. There's a lightness and a freedom because why? She's determining her work she's determining her team, she's determining the stories, the framing, the voices that they are amplifying. And these stories may not be the stories with which you're familiar, may not be the stories that America wants to hear. However, that's just it. They're the exact stories that we need to hear. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.